Welcome to Museum Chat Live, a fairly regular podcast series brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center. We're bringing you all things to do with St. Catharines, our history, and what's going on at our museum. Today, you're listening to Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator at the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center. And Sarah Nixon, Public Programmer here at the museum. Our community is filled with diverse stories and we recognize that our story begins with the Indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by Indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honor the centuries of Indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us. On this episode of Museum Chat Live, we're going to explore the fascinating story of a strike that overtook the major shipyards in Niagara in the summer of 1861. We're also going to hear about the research and development of the history and narrative, as well as a wonderful partnership between the museum and the drama students of Governor Simcoe Secondary School to turn the story into a piece of student-written theater. We're so excited to welcome drama teacher Rasika Risco and student Adam McIsaac for a discussion later in the episode. First, I should tell you the story of the strike. I've been working on this research and this project for a while now, and it's been a lot of hard work to discover this previously untold story of the first major strike of the early labor movement in Niagara. Enjoy the episode, everyone. On March 28, 1861, the St. Catharines Journal published a small news story about a strike at the local shipyards in Niagara. The article read, The ship carpenters and caulkers of this town, and also of Port Dalhousie and Port Robinson, struck this morning for an advance in wages. They demand $1.75 per diem instead of $1.50, which has been the wages for some time back. They also require weekly payments for their earnings. A society has been organized, and the men seem determined not to work until their demands are acceded to. The significance of these few lines appearing in the newspaper in March of 1861 should not be underestimated. The strike was an incredibly significant event in the history of the labor movement in Niagara and in Canada, since it is the first example of an industry-wide strike in Niagara. For the first time, workers from multiple employers came together as a united front against systematic issues across the industry and wielded union solidarity against multiple attempts to thwart their labor actions in a time when the lack of any labor legislation offered them any protection. The strike has been scarcely researched and written about, completely missed by 20th century historians interested instead in the great owners of the shipyards, such as the Muir brothers, the Abbey brothers, and the famous Louis Shikluna. But the story of how the workers came together to take on the early capitalist system in Niagara is captivating, with new, exciting details uncovered as research continues. The workers at the shipyards in Niagara, along the Second Welland Canal, were very busy in 1860 and early 1861. International trade and shipping was accelerating quickly, thanks to the rapid movement of goods on the railroads. But it was the steamships built at Niagara that continued to dominate the movement of goods and people on the Great Lakes. The shipbuilding industry in Niagara was enormous. At its peak in the 1850s and 1860s, Shikluna's yards employed over 300 skilled workers. Other yards also employed significant numbers, with the industry employing between 500 and 800 men annually. Often during these times, the work of skilled workers was supplemented by unskilled laborers, temporary labor brought in to help where they were able. In the span of just five years, between 1860 and 1865, over 25 ships, steam or sail, were built in Niagara's yards. The workers at the shipyards were traditionally divided by duties and job types. Everyone had their own skill, 
whether making sails or rigging, sawing timbers for planks, engineering, or the actual building and assembly of the ships, carpentering, and caulking. Carpenters built the boats, and caulkers came behind and sealed the gaps to make the vessel watertight. Shipbuilding is skilled work that required many skilled hands, but as workloads doubled, even tripled, from the previous decade, additional hands were needed and many unskilled laborers flooded the shipyards. Through the first Industrial Revolution and through the Victorian period, labor reorganized under large, single employers so that laborers were expected to attend and work during specific hours, under specific rules, and participate in an hourly or daily wage system, rather than a fee-for-service system which some specific trades might still have used. The wage systems under early capitalists were unpredictable and put pressure on families. Since only men were hired at factories or shipyards, only men could bring significant income to the home. When men weren't paid or were paid inconsistently, it became impossible for families to survive. Gender roles were reorganized and redefined so that women rarely had any opportunity to supplement household income as they did in pre-industrial economies. Unions became a source of stability in the new industrial age. To stretch their capital, owners sometimes paid workers using the truck payment system where instead of monetary compensation, workers were paid with credit to company-owned stores and supply chains. The truck payment system had been effectively eliminated through various reforms in the early part of the 19th century, but the use of the system in a temporary manner was generally accepted. While some workers lived in company-owned workers' cottages, with significant amounts going back to the company through rent payments, others who had household expenses would borrow money from the company and eventually work to pay off debt, a serious form of indentured servitude. The 19th century truck payment systems notoriously marked up prices and often lacked in supply of important goods, including medicine. The temporary unskilled laborers, some of whom floated from shipyard to shipyard all around the Great Lakes and didn't expect long-term employment at any one yard, were paid daily in cash. Skilled workers, on the other hand, were put into contracts using the truck payment system, especially in busy times, so that cash flow was directed to acquiring materials and supplies, not payments for labor. The skilled carpenters and caulkers also demanded a pay raise from $1.50 per day to $1.75 per day. It was obvious that unskilled workers produced lower quality work compared with the skilled workers. But since the unskilled workers worked more quickly, it gave the appearance that they were producing more. However, the union complained that not only did the carpenters and caulkers have to do their own work, but they were also responsible for fixing the mistakes and training up these unskilled workers, all while being paid the same amount. Because of the high number of orders the yards took on, and because of the appearance that unskilled laborers were faster workers, even though their mistakes set the company back significantly, some union men were overlooked or replaced by non-union men and out-of-town unskilled workers. Unbeknownst to the press and the workers themselves, as the focus was always on the increase in pay, the likely most significant demand, to the history of the labor movement anyway, was the right to be first to work for union members, meaning that union members would be employed before non-union members. This is significant because it is a huge step in union organization in this period, and the beginning of the idea of solidarity, joining union members together for a common cause. The labor movement was very, very young in 1861, a mere 30 or so unions existed in skilled labor trades such as engineering, printing, and shoemaking across Canada. Unions or associations rarely included unskilled laborers. Unions and associations in the early 19th century were not what we know them to be today. There was no union office, rarely a collection of dues, and communication was limited. The first example of organized work action of this kind in Canada 
were the printing strikes that rocked Toronto newspapers, including George Brown's The Globe. In 1853 and 1854, the entire union of printers and typesetters walked out on strike against the newspapers for trying to reduce wages and flooding the offices with unskilled and child labor. There are plenty of other examples of organized work action in St. Catharines, including the Shoemaker's Strike in 1859 and the Cooper's Strike in October of 1861, both for increased wages. Yet these strikes rarely included more than one employer, and the deals made were short-term and had to be renegotiated often. Without laws and protections available for unions and workers, owners were free to not only go back on their agreements, but also lock workers out and hire in unskilled labor to keep their shops and yards open. Union solidarity across the industry was increasingly important to making the negotiated demands stick. With a union formed in early 1861, a feat on its own, when the majority of its members were likely illiterate, the workers communicated their demands to the shipyard owners and walked off the job. Initially, the shipyard owners were positive in their response, and while they did not meet the union's demands right away, they promised to negotiate as long as workers returned to the job. The union did go back to work, but with certain conditions or work action as we know it today, including not allowing temporary and unskilled laborers to attend the work site. Not allowing the additional labor on site took immediate effect on productivity, and the union work action left gaps which slowed the launch of new ships, adding immense pressure to the somewhat overstretched yards. And so the owners, now facing financial pressure, began serious negotiations in April and May. By early May, it was widely suspected that owners were stalling and negotiating in bad faith so that their current ship orders could at least be completed and filled with existing labor. There is no evidence to support this, but these suspicions appeared in multiple editorials in this time frame. It's unclear how coordinated the ship owners were. It seems likely that they were in communication with one another about the strike, but it's doubtful they worked together in a strategic way. It's more likely that one followed the lead of another. At the beginning of June, the union could not come to an agreement, and the owners began locking out union members. Since there were effectively no laws protecting laborers or unions, owners were free to dismiss workers and hire in non-union labor from wherever available. Owners took out ads attracting workers from other yards in Hamilton and Kingston, and the unions followed suit, calling for solidarity amongst all workers on the Great Lakes, as clearly stated in this notice to fellowship carpenters and caulkers that appeared in the British Daily Whig from Kingston on June 1st, 1861. It reads, Notice, to ship carpenters and caulkers. Brother craftsmen, we have reason to believe that parties are at all the lake ports, holding out inducements and trying by false statements to get men to come here. The facts are, we are now struggling to have our wages paid in cash. Some of the employers refuse to do so. Their men are now on strike, and it is to fill the places of these men that carpenters and caulkers are wanted. We appeal to your sense of justice to uphold us in our moderate and just demands. The Ship Carpenters and Caulkers of the Welling Canal Protected Association, Port Dalhousie. The St. Catharines Journal depicts the height to which the pressure and conflict had risen with a news report dated June 10, 1861. It reads, St. Catharines, Monday, June 10th, Ship Carpenters Strike. A few months since an organization called the Welling Canal Ship Carpenters and Caulkers Union was formed in this town, all the hands employed on the line of canal becoming members. They demanded an increase of wages and pay every Saturday night. At the time, the yards were all crowded with work, and the masters were compelled to submit to the demands of the society. But it was done with ill grace, and with a determination to make an effort to break up the union as soon as circumstances would permit. The employers felt that the men had taken an undue advantage and very naturally hurried forward the work on hand so as to be in a position to retaliate. 
The time has now come, and we believe it is the intention to close all the shipyards on the canal during this present week. Two of them, Donaldson and Andrews at Port Dalhousie, and the Abbey Brothers at Port Robinson, have already discharged every Union man and will not employ any more men belonging to the association. Neither employers nor employees appear disposed to compromise or settle the dispute, and thus, through an ill-advised and unfortunate strike, a large number of men will be thrown out of employment during the greater portion of the summer, and a vast amount of capital, which their labor would produce, will be lost to the country. There can be no doubt that the men have had some cause for complaint, but the employer's engagements and duties have not been of the most easy kind. At great inconvenience and sometimes at a loss, they have kept men at work in their yards when they could have made more money by shutting them up. A little concession on both sides would probably have arranged the whole matter, but unfortunately, neither seem disposed to yield the least, and thus the strike bids fair to be of long continuance. It is said, but with what truth we cannot say, that the shipbuilders of Buffalo, Cleveland, and other lake cities intend joining those of the Welling Canal in their opposition to the demands of the men. If so, we need not expect to see any more launches of vessels during 1861. The Society held a meeting on Saturday evening, June 8th, but what they did we did not learn. Mr. Shikluna will discharge his men, those belonging to the Union, this week, and we understand Mr. Muir will follow his example next week. The war between employers and men has now fairly commenced, and goodness knows where or when it will end. On Saturday, June 8th, Mr. Shikluna refused to put men to work on a vessel in his dry dock, and five men who came from Oakville were induced to quit work on Friday, June 7th, join the society, have their passage money paid, and return home. The strike came to an even more dramatic and fiery head when the Abbey Brothers' yard in Port Robinson was completely destroyed by fire on June 13, 1861. Three members of the Union were arrested on suspicion of arson, Gus Lennon, Mike Couture, and John Dorrington. They had been dismissed two weeks prior, along with other Union members, for being members of the association. The three were criminally charged with arson and tried, but I have yet to determine their conviction and sentence. Despite some public support for the union, the yards were able to continue working at ship repairs and the strike did not seem to have an overwhelming impact on the operations of the yards in Niagara in the short term. A few examples of work that continued include the schooner S.D. Woodruff was sent to Shikluna's yard for repairs in April 1861, the Canada was launched by Shikluna's yard on June 1st, 1861. The first Maid of the Mist was launched in June of 1861. And when the captain took the new steamer through the Whirlpool and Rapids on the Niagara River, it was sent to Donaldson and Andrews shipyards in Port Dalhousie for repairs during the strike. John Charles Reichert, the MP for St. Catharines, began facilitating talks between St. Catharines and Toronto for ferry service between the cities. The ship was to be built in St. Catharines in the autumn of 1861. No further updates were posted by the journal. However, other yards in the Great Lakes encountered similar strikes, including in Oswego, with workers striking for the same demands as their industry counterparts in Niagara. The results of the strike are still unclear. However, it appears the union won their demands. In 1863, the owners were looking to reduce the pay of union workers from $1.75 to $1.50 per day, suggesting the union had accomplished their goal. The workers at Muir Brothers were on strike again briefly in October 1863, because that yard wanted to return to the truck wages system. Again, another clue the union had won their demands. Laws protecting laborers and unions did not exist. While the union men were back on the job with a new pay rate, being paid in cash, and having the right to be the first to work, it would be a temporary, tentative, and tenuous deal 
that would have to be renegotiated again and again until the labor movement in the 1880s secured more rights for workers and laws protecting unions. The 1861 shipyard strike is significant because it is an early example of organized labor action which included workers from across the industry. There are few other examples of similar labor action from Canadian history during this time. There is little to no historical study of these events and only a few primary source documents mention the strike in any form. The majority of this story is pieced together from newspapers with many gaps. And so, while the research continues, many significant questions remain. Mrs. Risco and Adam from Governor Simcoe Secondary School. Thank you so much for joining us on Museum Chat Live to talk about this fantastic project and all that went into writing the script for Strike 1861. But first, I think we should get to know you a little bit better. So Adam, I'd like to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this production? Yeah, of course. So uh, I was in my grade 12 year and I started shows in grade 10. So by this year in grade 12, I was kind of like roped into it. I, it wasn't even like a choice. It's not like I felt obligated. It was just kind of like, I, I don't know. There was no way I wasn't going to do it. So my friends convinced me to do it in my grade 10 year. So then I kind of just stuck with it all the way through. That's fantastic. So you are, this is your grade 12, so you're finished, you're graduating after this year. Wow, well congratulations on graduating high school. Thank you very much. Okay, and Mrs. Risco, could you share a little bit more about yourself and your role at Governor Simcoe? Yeah, uh, I'm a high school teacher. I have been teaching since uh, 2001. It's a very long time ago. Uh, I teach, I run the drama program at Governor Simcoe, and I've been at Simcoe since 2006. Wow, that's awesome. Great. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, you guys, for, uh, for sharing a little bit about yourselves. So uh, let's get started then. And let's start with the research process um, of this project, uncovering the historical sources of the 1861 strike I think this might actually be an Adrian question. Um, Adrian, what can you tell us about the uh, researching of this moment in history? The first thing I'll say is that there aren't a lot of sources, especially with this particular uh, topic. There are so many gaps. There's a couple of reasons for that. Um, the newspaper collections that we have and that the library has aren't complete. There's a lot missing. The other thing is that newspapers are usually owned by politicians or their friends or other businessmen or capitalists. And the reporting on labor action at the time was kind of minimal and specifically from a slanted view. So if they did cover it, they covered it in a generally in, in a negative way. And most of the most of the coverage is very vague and there's not a lot of information. There aren't a lot of records from this time period in the shipyards other than what ships they were building and when they were launched. So there aren't there just aren't sources. And finally, the, 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 bigger, the biggest challenge, I think anyway, is that historians throughout the 20th century up until the 1970s, 80s, basically ignored uh, labor history. And so no historians really before us in, this, uh, in, in St. Catharines anyway, went back and looked at this particular, this particular event. And it, it likely, there were likely other strikes that just weren't covered or don't appear in the, in the written record that we have today. And uh, so like not a lot of storytelling has been done about this particular um, event. And it's pretty significant because as far as we can tell, it's the largest, uh, sorry, it's the earliest example basically of labor action 
of across an industry. So often workers would strike against one owner. So like people would get together in the shop and strike against one owner for one particular thing. But this is a really early example of organized labor across uh, across an entire industry for more than one owner. And so, uh, and for like a longer list than just one thing. So there, it's it's interesting to see organize the early, early roots of organized labor. So yeah, it, it created a lot of challenges because there's so many gaps and we don't know the answers to some questions that um, we would like to know the answers to. But it's interesting because the research started off with just a vague reference to the strike at Shikluna's yard uh, in some book I read a million years ago. And uh, I put it on the back burner because it seemed like I couldn't find any other references and it seemed like a lot of research. So actually I picked it up last summer with the help of our summer student last year, Amanda Balak, who is actually a student at Governor Simcoe uh, years ago, because she's in your, she's just finishing yeah. up her master's now. But uh, she did some research for me as well, looking at some of the sources. And then I wrapped it up in the fall. And uh, yeah, so it's probably a good time to talk about how we got to the idea <laughs> of um, doing a show. But uh, I think since um, listeners have heard the story, it's riveting tale that could be presented in a variety of ways. Thanks for that. And that does bring me directly to my next question uh, from Mrs. Risco, which is what drew you to this project? You heard Adrian talking about this and you were like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> We work on a two and every other year model. So last year we just finished a musical. So this year was a play year and I was having a hell of a time finding a play that I wanted to do that would showcase the kids' talents. I was looking to re-energize the program a little bit and kind of bring it back to the bare bones of where I started and what I want out of the program. And then I got a random Facebook message, literally um, <laughs> the stars aligned and Adrian's like, Hey, so I have this thing and I think it would be really awesome to turn into a play. And I don't really know if I read the rest of the message and I just started typing, yes, let's do it. Um, it you know, it's locally connected to our community. Our kids get to write and just, and to be on stage, which is a new thing that we'd never done before. Um, I was gonna get to work with a, a small group of kids in a concentrated manner. Uh, and it was gonna be something that was our own and that was really important to me this year. So kind of all the, the boxes got checked and I, I just said, yeah, let's do it. So then we kind of just started, that was October, I think. But up until that point, I was like, I don't know what we're gonna do this year. And then, then, then here came my friend Adrian and here we go. <laughs> I should add for context that I've been volunteering, I guess is the best yeah. word, at, at Simcoe for <clears throat> five, six years now, helping out with, uh, with the musical productions and, and some of the plays as well. And we sort of, I'm kind of maybe a member of the team, if that's not too presumptuous. Oh, no, no, you are a member of the team. <laughs> <laughs> you had reached out to me anyway, like, do you have mm. any ideas of plays that we could do? Yeah. And I had sort of had this research thing and I wasn't prepared to do it this year because I hadn't had the opportunity to get into the research but then I was like I think like just from my side of the, the of that message was uh -huh. I'm never going to do the research if I don't have some sort of pressure on so hey you want to do this and yeah Oh, that's so awesome. Okay, so Adrian uh, comes to you with this idea, uh, and then all of the historical sources of the strike were compiled. So then how, what was it like to manage taking all of this historical content and presenting it to the students to say, okay, now let's make a thing. Like, what was that like? Okay, Adam, you might need to help me here because your memory is better than mine. But I think what we, the way we did it is we auditioned first. So we had a a really strong company of kids together. And then as a group, we pretty much wrote the entire thing together. Near the end, we petered into a smaller group just for efficiency sake. But uh, once we had done the casting, we had, um, I think it was a Sunday night in the library where Adrian kind of did the research and we started playing around uh, with some characters. And actually, I think one or two of the characters from that very first night ended up staying throughout the whole piece. And it was, we just meet, we'd kind of be like, okay, well, let's look at this next piece and kind of play around and, and grab some dialogue from these different uh, scenes that they were devising in the moment. We recorded everything uh, and then we just started to piece it together. So it was kind of a, it happened in tandem where, you know, Adrian would give some information, we'd go and work with it and then we'd have questions and then we had like a running Google doc of questions and then we'd go back and then do the next piece and then, you know, Adrian would tweak it or be like, no, that's historically inaccurate. I'd be like, well, that's why you're here. Um, so <laughs> thank you. There's a lot of, 
we'll ask Adrian that next time he's here. And then I think that to me, that's kind of the process where we've worked with the historical information at the same time, bit by bit, so we didn't get overwhelmed. Being able to pull it bit by bit and then having Adrian be able to answer our questions as we went forward. Uh, really helped the process of pulling out the pieces that we needed for the information. So Adam, what was that like for you then to go through those historical sources and try and imagine the production with your uh, your castmates, I guess? Well, initially we did kind of like a bit of a slideshow. So it was kind of like an informational lesson and we had to just take a bunch of notes down. And so sitting there and listening to all that information, it was really a lot to take in. And <laughs> um, um, <laughs> imagine production from that information was just so hard to imagine an end let alone a start was just completely mind-blowing because there's nothing that really told us that we had to follow a certain structure we could really start any way we wanted so once you find that start you kind of have a pathway that you're directing yourself down but it was really hard to just wonder how we're going to take in this information and make in a whole entire piece out of it i think that speaks to a lot of trust between between uh, me and Rasika, and then also uh, us and the kids, because remember, there's still so many gaps that a lot of the, some of, well, not a lot, but like some of the gaps were filled by some fictional pieces that we kind of made assumptions or or added in fictional characters to bridge the gaps. And um, it required a lot of imagination and a huge amount of trust. Remember the first time I told you the story, Rasika, I was, I couldn't even tell you the whole story because I was yeah. like, uh, I think this is what happened. And then by the time I finished up as much of the research as I could find, when I hit, started hitting more dead ends than anything else, uh, I took it to the kids. And again, it was, it was probably super overwhelming, as Adam mentioned, because I had to not only introduce them to the strike, to labor history, but also to the idea of the shipyards, the Wallen Canal and all that stuff. And I remember looking at you guys and just feeling overwhelmed myself and yeah. then <laughs> that that just requires so much trust and uh, I'm so grateful for you for you guys but I think it just shows what a good team <laughs> you have uh, in your students Raska because everybody was even though they were on overwhelmed and even though the story was kind of like not really at all developed everybody was there and everybody was committed so yeah Good on them, for sure. Absolutely. And there was a lot of changes, a lot of things that we loved that didn't make it or things that we didn't love that ended up having to be tweaked to be made. And, you know, I, even just the, you know, what was life like in 1861? Like, I, I'm not a historian. So for, even wow. for me to wrap my head around that, you know, and to go back and change the lingo of the, of the, um, of the script, like with the whole company credit, like that was a whole thing. And what was cash like? And, you know, it was a, it definitely a process for the kids. Uh, amazes me that they were able to do what they did in the short time that we did it in. You know, like we turned around a script in about four months with labor disputes of our own happening, which was kind of ironic. Um, and, you know, a lot of late nights and a lot of a lot of cookies that rehearsal, but we managed to pull together a script. So it was it was pretty remarkable what they did. Sounds so amazing and so impressive. Given all of the whole process, I'd love to know a little bit more about the, the process in writing also, like, how did you come up with the characters and what perspectives to tell the story from? Like, where did all that draw from? So a lot of what we did and we uh, derived everything from was we did a lot of workshops for the first two months. And so we worked in groups to kind of come up with ideas. So basically every day we kind of focus on like a different portion of the story. So Risco would give us a bit of information about what was happening in that scene and a bit of background information. And we'd kind of just have 30 minutes to an hour to kind of create whatever scene we could. And then we would present them to each other and we'd talk about what worked and what didn't work and what we want to save and what maybe we don't want to use and be able to kind of like cultivate that into um, all of our scenes that we ended up creating. Wow, so it sounds like there's a lot of collaboration. For sure. Oh, it was constant. There was never any quiet time or individual time for this process. I think, and I could be wrong here, Adam, but the character that Adam ends up playing, George, which is one of the main characters in the play, is a character that showed up very early on in the process. And then, you know, we had the girls in the group and a, a couple of the guys in the group, but most of the girls, I hate to, you know, kind of cone them in like that, but they needed a love story. And Adrian needed a love story. We had to have a love story. So George ended up, it was like this constant, like, and then they fall in love after everything I said. 
So uh, we ended up using George as the main male love interest, which actually helped focus quite a bit of the work. But George showed up and, and then his counterpart, Eleanor, showed up very early in the process. Uh, and then I remember one of our other students, Lexi, uh, played the shopkeeper one day at the store on the site. And she played it so well that that character ended up staying. And then, But there were lots of other characters like Shikuna's wife at the time who we didn't keep because she just didn't feed the story. Um, and then everybody's personal favorite character was Ethwald, who I think we randomly named by looking up names of people from the 1860s so we could stay historically accurate. And I think we all got a giggle out of the name Ethwald. And so Ethwald became this lovely but simple young man who, you know, wasn't really sure what he was doing on the on the on the dock or at the shipyard, but he was just there to earn some money and God help you if you had to work with Ethwald for the day. So Yeah, Ethwald was a really good yeah. like microcosm of a representation of the entire like unskilled section of of the the workers basically that were causing all the trouble. But he he was just so funny and lovable. <laughs> and it like it and lovable exactly yeah. and so like it really presented and the kids really came up with this way uh sorry i shouldn't call you kids the students really because you're not none of you are children um the the students really came up with the um the sort of the contrast of how the uh skilled workers would uh react to the laborers i mean versus uh, so the 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 workers uh, versus the owners, and then the workers versus the unskilled laborers, and all of these relationships and like the dynamics between those groups were developed with such complexity by the students, and I was so impressed. Um, I wouldn't, I obviously didn't have time to go to every rehearsal, and so the progress that was made, especially after we kind of got going with uh, mm -hmm. with the story, progress that was made was incredible and the complexity that was drawn out of the story um, and I didn't give a lot of character detail or or who were these people and that kind of thing and the students with the help of uh, you Raska and also um, our other teacher partner um, Christopher Pierce an English teacher Governor Simcoe was also a huge huge help in terms of developing character and sort of plot and and like rounding out uh, the story it, it, it's just so Im so impressive. And I think the other you know, favorite character. It was very late in the process, so we had these characters built, and you know we we're working with the the six shipyard owners, and we knew we had to have them and these incidental other characters. And then right near the very end, I'm like, we need a gossip scene with some ladies on the site, and then we created this like moment with Eleanor and three other ladies, like who just you know stereotypical ladies who just sit around and have tea and gossip about everybody and then that ended up becoming another one of their favorite scenes just because it was it was one of those like moments of levity in a, in a pretty serious script so you know as much as we had these characters that showed up in November we also had characters that showed up right near the very end you know where we were writing the last few scenes to tie things together that were also you know well loved and and by the majority of the kids in the cast so and I, I'll call them kids because to me they're my kids so it is what it is. What was it like then to balance historical fact and fiction, especially given like there were a lot of gaps in the sources, it sounds like, but you know, if you didn't come from a history background, what was it like to try and balance that in creating the play? Uh, it was hard for me. I'm not a historian. I don't, I can't pull out context for, you know, days gone by easily. So for me, it was actually hard and I found it, and this is kind of a big word, but maybe not the right word, paralyzing at times. Like I think actually starting to write the play and writing that first scene was terrifying. And, and I just, who I am, I tend to put things off if I'm afraid of them. And then finally it's like, I can't do this to the students. We're going to run out of time. I just got to start writing. So it was one day we were in the computer lab trying to type this scene together. And I was, I could just feel my stress level through the roof. And I'm typing it going, I don't even know if this is historically accurate. And Adrian's going to read it and he's going to laugh at me. And how dare I not know what life is like in 1861. Um, so from my perspective as the teacher in the room um, with Chris Pierce, who was, you know, he had a little bit more of a historical context when Adrian wasn't there. Uh, it was really terrifying to do because you, you, you can't mess it up. Like you can't mess up facts from history. And then without having to stop to fact check everything every, every three seconds, you still had to make progress and had to move the piece ahead you know, in the time that we had. So for me, on my end, it was hard. But I, I mean, that's my perspective. I'm not quite sure what Adam's perspective was on that. So as we wrote, obviously, we had quite a bit of um, fact as well. But a lot of the times it was kind of hard because 
I feel like we'd kind of leave blanks in the script and kind of spaces where we were like, oh, well, we're going to find out some information <laughs> and throw that in here. So there was a lot of bold or underline or highlighted where we're trying to find a name or we're trying to find a ship name that was waiting for a little while. So I think for us, when we were trying to fill in fiction, it was more or less trying to fill in the space with characters. So when we didn't have space to fill in with fact that we weren't really sure about, we were kind of able to more work on character development because there was no kind of mold that we had to follow for that. So we were able to kind of balance the history with like the entertainment of having these characters grow throughout our story. Okay, well, anyway, that was, thank you very much for those answers. Um, <laughs> I'm completely lost right now. So it's definitely the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. This was us at about eight o'clock every rehearsal night. We'd start to oh. lose our minds and just start giggling and where were we? And then like Celia would get written into the script and then Adrian would have to come out and take it out. And what are you guys doing? It was eight o'clock. It was eight o'clock. <laughs> it's so it's so funny because that that silliness, I think, is where most of the Ethwald uh, <laughs> character came from. Like at, at that there's a there's a time period in some of these rehearsals between like what eight and eight thirty, which is probably the end of rehearsal, if I remember correctly, you'd think that if we were getting silly that not a lot of work would get done, but actually some really cool ideas came out of that. <laughs> I thought I'd add a little bit to the process part from yeah. being on the outside perspective. Again, I was just so impressed every time I'd come back. They would always burst my expectations every time I came back to look at how much they had done. But I'd talk to Adam or Janika or a few of the others or to you and uh, you and Chris and you guys would all be like, oh, we didn't get very far. And I'm like, what do you mean? You like, look at all the, look at all the gaps you filled. And I think the, the, the great part about that is just how talented these people are mm -hmm. in terms of finding something to fill the gaps, but also to, like a vehicle to carry these storylines. Like one of the reasons why I just so desperately wanted a love story was so that we weren't stuck in the animosity of the owners and the workers the whole time, but also that it might carry some of those additional story pieces, like um, like how women were treated in uh, the, the this industrial period, urban life, you know, those types of things needed to be carried by other people that weren't part of, the, you know, like in the B plot rather than in the main uh, strike story. So, um, but my favorite, favorite mental image of the whole process is all the students. We had 25, 30? Yeah, yeah, somewhere around there, somewhere between 25 and 30. All the students, uh, very early on, we used, maybe not the same teams, they probably rotated through groups, but yeah, yeah. they had, um, my favorite image is just all the students in their little pods sitting on the stage, all coming up with all different ideas. Sometimes they'd come up, groups across the stage from each other would come up with the same idea, which is always super cool, but they'd all come up with different elements. And often every scene has one or two little elements yeah. from all of those pods. My favorite mental image of the entire process is those pods of students sitting on stage. Oh, I love that. And it seems like just hearing you guys talk about it, all of you, it seems like it was such a powerful time, you know, it kind of was, like, you know, you, you started right from the very beginning, it was an idea and it grew into this amazing script. So it must, you must not each have like these personal connections, each of the characters and the storylines. And I think that's really, really special and awesome. Um, so my, my next question is just why do you think a theatrical production is such a great medium for the story. Like what can you do with a play that you might not be able to do with other mediums? I think being able to write it as a play allowed us to share historical information while still keeping it interesting. I think um, Risco and Adrian mentioned quite a few times that our goal was to try and make it not like an infomercial. We weren't mm -hmm. just trying to relay all this information. We were trying to take in the information and inform the audience while still trying to be able to entertain the audience. And I think that that's something that a play could do that other, other forms could not. Yeah, I think it's that human connection thing, right? Which is why theater's amazing. It's that in the moment live human connection thing. We knew, you know, we knew Ethel was going to get, you know, that endearing laughter from the audience. We knew that George and Eleanor, we, you know, were going to be, you know, rooted for her. And we also knew that the shipyard owners were going to, you know, ev evoke a certain emotion. So there's something to be said about watching something live and being able to have that immediate response to it. And then, I mean, that's why actors do it, right? They get that 
feedback from the audience and it pushes them to continue going. And a story like this, which is rooted in, you know, it's rooted in history, it's rooted in um, layers and layers of information and gaps. But, you know, we as teachers, we went through a really challenging year this year uh, with our own labor disagreement. So for me, it was kind of a little bit of a close I held it close to my heart because a lot of the things that were happening in 1861 were happening, you know, in that moment, like there were many rehearsals where I would show up half an hour late because I had to go stand on an information picket line because that's my duty as a union person and to protect the sanctity of my job, you know, and the kids would happily be working away because they understood that what I was doing out there was directly connected to what we were doing in there. And then it would fuel, it would, you know, the first time in my life I stood on a picket line and then I came back to rehearsal. I'm like, okay, this is how it goes. So let's work. Like, you know, I was ready to write that scene because I had, you know, I had some knowledge to attach to it. I had some emotion. It's, it's that, it's that connection. It's, you can't get it. You can't get it in the same way from different medium. You know, all the other mediums are va very valid and, and, and you can pull from them, but it, live theater is, I don't know. It's been so long since I've been on that side of the stage, but live theater, just that, that thing. I can't explain it. That magic. I don't know. It's two o'clock, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, Risco, can you talk a little bit? Cause no one has actually seen it. We're going to play, oh, the yeah. we're going to play the audio from the recording that everybody did, um, okay. but nobody's actually seen it. Could you talk a little bit about the form structure style of the theater that we created? Cause it's kind of, it's, specific in like that it's a big ensemble piece. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm a very uh, movement-based um, teacher and director. I'm not a dancer, but I love movement. I love music. A lot of what we did in the devising time, and Adam can attest to this, was I'd play random pieces of music and just kind of have it underlying whatever we were doing. Um, so the pieces, and we struggled really hard with, did we want to go character driven? Did we want to do something a little bit more different? Uh, we ended up doing a traditional plot, but there, um, there's a few scenes in there that we deal with movement. So I, you know, I'd get online and I'd see some really cool movement activities, completely unrelated. And then I'd bring it to rehearsal when we play and I'd say, okay, now put it in the context of a day on the picket line. And then they were able to kind of tweak their movement. So as much as there's a, um, a traditional plot with a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? We start with the discontent, we end, and then we end with the resolution of the strike, and we have this love story going on in all these secondary characters. Um, at one point, one of the shipyards, which people familiar with the story know, is uh, set on fire. So we actually did that whole scene through movement um, and through choreographed movement, and I was so excited about that scene. Um, and we were going to have it ripple, and the way that we were going to use some. Um, some effects on stage to kind of visualize that and make that moment come alive and really dramatize it. So it's traditional, but it has these little um, moments where we kind of put the audience on the edge of their seat a little bit because they weren't expecting it and, and they weren't, um, maybe they weren't anticipating it, but it's not so left field that they're kind of jarred into disconnecting from the piece. It just gives them something else to think about. So in the, the one that comes to mind is the movement that we had planned um, for the fire at the Abbey Brothers shipyard. I think, right, Adam? And then, you know, there was the choral speaking moments in the bar where you have a pocket of people speaking. And then, you know, a few other workers from another shipyard start talking and the layering of that. And then juxtapose that with the, the shipyard owners kind of giving their side of it. A lot of choral work, which I love, because I think, I think it can drive a point home quickly and effectively without, you know, taking forever to get to that point. So I think those are the key styles that we had my favorite one that do you remember the process around um and adam you'll laugh at this too um big axe bart oh god um, big axe <laughs> so big axe bart was uh created by uh, a fellow a student, student of adam's um noah shikluna pierce and that shikluna actually uh, in his name he's uh, a distant descendant or not not distant but uh Shikluna's Direct. time ago, so distant in terms of time, um, yeah. a descendant of uh, Louis Shikluna, and um, and he was in the show. It was really great, but uh, he picked up this homemade prop axe, which was comically oversized, and I think he just came up with the name by himself one day and just kind of inserted that character into the show. It ended up in the script, and I, I just... I couldn't see it, and maybe it was because I was taking it too seriously. I just couldn't see it, but there was 
And I think we should talk about the editing process too, maybe because mm. the kids did so much writing and then you guys workshopped it and workshopped it and workshopped it. And then I went back and said, well, what about this? And Chris also was looking at like consistency and continuity mm-hmm. through, through lines and plot lines and stuff like that. And the first thing I think I removed was big X bar. I just couldn't figure out a way to make it fit feeling wise in my head and historically. Um, but then it was probably the first thing I brought back if ever that I, I cut something or suggested a cut for something. I think the first thing that I brought back was Big Axe Bart because it just fit so well with the character, but also just the vibe of the group of laborers who were leading the strike in our play. And mm-hmm. um, I remember making that wonderful announcement to Noah when it, <laughs> when it came back and everyone gave a great big cheer. It was wonderful. So it was a lot of, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it was a lot of like devising it and, and coming up with it as a group. And so I think for a while it, it was hard for us to get used to because it, it was a long process that felt really almost unrewarding in a sense in the beginning because there was no, um, there was nothing written down for a while. It was just a lot of process that we were working on. So I think I think it was um, kind of hard in that sense because it was it was hard to kind of break that barrier and realize that we were um, getting a lot of work done and what we were doing. But I think it ended up being uh, rewarding in the end. And we ended up going back a lot and saying, remember that moment that we did and then heaven help us try to find the video clip. (laughs) We're like, oh, does anyone remember? And then we'd all sit there in silence and stare at each other and. You know, then one person would say something and then we get the ball rolling. But it was a lot of like, yeah, you're right. It felt like it was, and I felt I would go home at rehearsal saying, you know, it was a good rehearsal, but I don't know if they can see what they're doing because it's not tangible. There's no dialogue written down on paper. Um, But then when we started writing, it was so much quicker. Like things just started falling into place because we had done all that groundwork. Right. So sometimes it's trusting that process and that process was new. We've never written a show at, um, I've never written a show as a teacher. Um, uh, and I've never written a show at Simcoe with a group of students. So the whole thing start to finish was a whole brand new endeavor that we kind of traveled through together. So Adam, do you have a, do you have a particular moment in from uh, development time that stands out to you? It's like a favorite or a striking memory. Um, I think when me and I think it was Kaylin, Santi, Olivia and Emily, we, we were in that group and it was a day we were just doing kind of character development and we had a scene where we just had to come up with three tableau um, moments oh, yeah. to kind of come up with characters and stuff. And so that's where we came up with George and his family and that kind of stuck for quite a while in the process. So I think that moment stands out to me because we kind of came up with this defining moment and characters without even kind of realizing it. So it's really cool to look back on and see, you know, kind of how that uh, affected the show without even realizing what we were doing. I would guide the rehearsals with the techniques that the kids were comfortable working with. So one day we'd work with Tableau. One day I'd say, okay, I want you to do this as crawl speaking. One day I want you to do this as movement. Um, so the rehearsals, the style of the show is embedded based on how we develop the piece. And sometimes you'd be like, okay, this actually would be better, you know, as, as a movement piece, let's go back and tweak it and, and do it that way. Um, but it was as someone who was terrified to do the process and many times throughout the process was like, what the hell did I just sign up the sign up to do with the kids? Um, I, it amazed me how the pieces just started to fall in together and, and that, you know, you gain confidence every time another chunk of the script would show up on, you know, would get typed and, and show up. So, and then near the end, it was like, we could anticipate what everybody else is going to see. Yeah, we're missing this or we need another quick scene here. And then, you know, we got so good at writing eventually, Adam, that we were able to sit down in smaller pockets and just pull those extra little bits out. So, and then Adrian would take his big red editing pen and then, I'm just joking, <laughs> take it all out. <laughs> pages and pages out, rewrite this. No, no. <laughs> no, it was, it's, uh, it's really, it was really great too, because uh, Risco and I talked at length a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot about how we really wanted it to be uh, written by the students yeah. and not to have their voices eliminated through whatever editing process. And so we we really strive to keep keep it as their show, and it is like the final product is is really their 
their show. And uh, we often talked about like, we really have to be careful not to edit too much um, or, or edit their voices out. But the great thing is that we didn't need to because it was just so much, uh, so much good stuff coming off, off the writing process of the, uh, uh, from the students. So it, the success of the project is not only because of the trust and the huge risk that you guys took in working with me when I came to you with a story that was <laughs> unfinished with holes like Swiss cheese, but um, also in the the talent and the energy and the drive and the com- uh, and the and the passion and the commitment. The commitment level was insane because, uh, like Adam was talking about, there was no instant reward. The reward was going to come later and eventually never came, unfortunately. But the commitment was insane because th- there was no there's no instant feedback from mm-hmm. the whole process. Um, yeah. So good on them. Good on them. Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, you know, an amazing group of kids to work with. And I still, you know, I, I cringe everyone every time, like, you know, you'll hear, I wrote a play or we're writing a play. You're like, Oh, okay, this can go one of two ways. So then when I had to start saying, we're going to write a play, I was like, you know, you're going to fake it till you make it. And then, you know, and then, by March break, we had the script was done. It was copied. The kids had their copies to take home with them. The casting was firmed up and in place. And, and, you know, I just kind of looked at them and said, like, we did it. Like, we did it. It's right here. It's, it lives in, you know, it lives in your hand right now. And, and it wasn't some terribly cheesy cliched uh, um, piece of work. It was, it was, it was a really great piece of work with some really, you know, amazing characters that we had managed to um, intermingle and weave and connect right through to the end. We managed to figure out what the end looked like when we had no idea because of the gaps in the history. Um, and uh, it was, it was a process I don't, um, I, I won't soon forget. And I'm just, I'm just sad that we weren't able to perform it live on the stage with the cast that we had. Uh, they're a pretty remarkable, um, pretty remarkable group of kids and ranging from grade nine right through till grade, grade 12. Like, so kids who had never worked with me before, to kids who apparently I roped in <laughs> for three years. <laughs> you had no choice. You played Peter and that was it. You were stuck with me for the rest of your high school career. <laughs> Maybe next time don't do such a good job, Adam, then I won't, <laughs> I won't be roping you in again. <laughs> Thank you to Mrs. Risco, Adam, and Adrian for sharing your insights on the creating of this production. I'm sure that this is not the end of the story, There is a lot more work to be done in telling the story of the 1861 strike. Now that we've learned so much about the behind the scenes of strike 1861, let's take a sneak peek of the actual play. We were incredibly lucky to have the drama students of Governor Simcoe come together virtually to record the first scene of the play as part of a lecture we held on June 19th. We'd like to share this with their Museum Chat Live listeners now. So here we present to you for the first time over audio and through podcast form, the first scene of Strike 1861. St. Catharines, February 1861. The foundations of our new country are about to be laid. This isn't the St. Catharines our grandparents knew. Where opportunity awaited in the fields of Niagara. The work is different now. The work is harder now. Life is harder now. We begin our story in St. Catharines at the famous shipyard owned by Mr. Louis Chicluna. The most successful yard in Niagara. Yet, I'm not alone in the business. We boast five other yards on the canal. Muir Brothers of Port Dalhousie. Mr. Simpson of St. Catharines. Mr. Donaldson and Mr. Andrews of Port Dalhousie and the Abbey Brothers of Port Robinson together employ over 1,000 men men who work hard keeping their yards open who haven't been paid who can't feed their families day after day after day ain't right ain't right ain't right their workers are tired Their workers are hungry. Their workers are fed up. Yet we face incredible pressure to meet demand. To build the finest ships on the Great Lakes. Amidst rising costs. With a civil war about to erupt in the United States. Pay up and cut. Our workers 
need to be patient. Give us the work first. Our workers need to be patient. We want a raise. Our workers need to be patient. We need more capital. We need to build more ships. We need extra laborers to help the tradesmen. We'll have to pay the laborers in cash. The tradesmen can stay on credit. There's talk of a union, an association. A union can't protect them. It would be optimal if workers would remain patient. I ask for your patience. Will you please be patient? Please be patient. You'll be paid. Just remain patient. Patience. Ain't right. Concessions must be made. Ain't right. If you still want jobs tomorrow. And so here we stand. With our two sides at odds. Ready for a fight. Spoiling for a fight. That's it for this episode of Museum Chat Live. Thank you so much to our guests and partners at Governor Simcoe, Rasika Risco, Christopher Pierce, Anna McIsaac, and all the students at Simcoe Drama. If you want to hear more about the history of Niagara shipyards, reach out to us for a recording of Archaeology of a 19th Century Shipyard, a lecture from earlier this spring from our virtual museum lecture series. And stay tuned for more stories from this dramatic, mostly untold history as we uncover more information and fill in the gaps. Onward to the archives. Make sure to subscribe to Museum Chat Live and the museum's other podcast, One Hour in the Past, on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Museum Chat Live is brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre and the City of St. Catharines.